You may be seated. And when you are, please open your copies of God's Word to the Epistle of James. We are charting new territory this morning, getting into chapter 5. What I'd like to do is kind of follow the same pattern that I uh, normally follow, which is to read the text just before. Our sermon text today is James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. But what we're going to do is start reading in chapter 4 at verse 13. That way it'll remind us of the last place we were and set the context for the text we're meditating on today. I would remind you that this is God's holy and inspired word. Uh, James, beginning at chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's come before the Lord and pray. Lord, your servant, James, continues to bring us heavy words, words that we wrestle with and want to know how to apply, words we want to come upon us and to shape us. So, Lord, we would pray to that end. We would ask that you would help us as we meditate on your word, and we pray that as we hear your word, you would move that Rolodex, that hard drive of our mind, and you would bring up texts um, that would help us to understand a cross-reference even in our hearts and our minds as we meditate on your word. Would you help us this morning to be good students, to be worshipers? Lord, we would ask that you would help us with the power of your spirit, and we'd ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, the 20th century has had its share of uh, greedy leaders who have indulged themselves with money and power with little thought of the destruction and harm that uh, they have caused others. Um, You might think of some of the notorious ones from the 20th century like Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong and uh, Joseph Stalin, just to name a few. 
And you might know that even as the Third Reich crumbled and Hitler knew that the war was completely lost, he had no concern for the people, for his people, for the German people. He was urged to ensure Germany's survival. But Hitler said it's not necessary to worry about their needs for survival. The future belongs to the strong people of the East. He was referring to Russia, who, were, um, who had just taken Berlin and who, who were at his doorstep. In our text, James says that judgment is coming to those who indulge themselves and oppress others. And you can see that in verse 4 and 5, can't you? And his primary goal, that is, James's primary goal, is to encourage his readers that God will right all wrongs and to provide instruction regarding wealth and worldliness. He echoes the voice of the Old Testament prophets that James tells the unbelieving rich to weep and howl because the judgment of God is coming and it will bring them misery. And as you look at this text in conjunction with the rest of Scripture, you realize that wealth itself isn't the issue. No, it's the self-indulgent greed of man's heart and the fruit that that bears. So as we look at this text today, we're going to ask, if the rich that James is addressing have acted sinfully concerning their wealth, what is a biblical way to handle wealth and forego sin and worldliness? As James begins, you see that the rich are condemned first because they have hoarded their wealth and put their trust in their resources. And you learn that you should trust the Lord and invest your resources faithfully. That's our first heading. Invest your resources faithfully. Invest your resources faithfully. James begins by addressing rich unbelievers who are exploiting the, the poor um, as if they were there in the church to hear his letter read out. This is in the style of Old Testament prophets who delivered scathing denunciations to absent audiences, such as oppressive foreign nations. You should uh, be familiar with uh, this, this style from reading prophets such as Jeremiah and Amos and Nahum. The warning that James delivers to the ungodly rich is meant to steer the church away from the kind of sin that is addressed and to keep them from being drawn off course. In verse 1, James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You'll notice James didn't say that it was a sin to be rich. After all, Abraham was a wealthy man, and yet he walked with God and was greatly used of God to bless the whole world. No, James condemns the hoarding of wealth, laying up treasure. 
The ancient world had three standard sources of wealth. That was harvested grain and clothing and precious metals and jewels. Clothing was important in the ancient world because it demonstrated your status and your position in the world. And the same is true today, isn't it? Uh, The brands we wear broadcast something about uh, the money we have and um, who we are. We can think of the giant uh, fashion names of our generation, names like Louis Vuitton and Armani and Gucci and Chanel. I don't own any of it. I'm sure I've seen it. But notice the hoarding in verse 2. The garments are stored away, aren't they? And they've become ruined in their storage. The text says that the clothes have been eaten by moths. And you'll notice in verse 3, the gold and the silver all bear the marks of disuse. It's become corroded in storage. You see, the rich have laid up treasure for themselves. They've hoarded wealth, and the unused wealth that they've counted on has already begun to fail them. The action of the unbelieving rich reveals their hearts. It exposes where they've placed their faith, where they've placed their hope, their trust. They're storing up wealth, trusting that it will keep them safe and secure. It's their strategy to retain power and their ability to persuade others to ensure that they'll be able to continue to indulge their desires. Is it sinful to save money? No. In fact, Proverbs 21, verse 20 says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Well, what does God want you to do with the resources that he has given you. He wants you to manage them well, and he wants you to put them to good use. And we learn that in the parable of the talents, don't we? Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 25. It's the story about a master who goes away on a journey and he entrusts his servants with money. He entrusts them uh, with Eight talents of gold. A talent is um, a unit of measure in, in those days, it was 126 point something um, pounds of gold. It was a large sum. Uh, for our sake, we'll just say bags of money. He had eight bags of money, three servants. He gives one servant five bags, one servant two bags, and one servant one bag. And if you know the story, you know that the servant with two bags and five bags go and invest what they've been given, and they double, they double it. But the servant that had one bag, he buries it. He doesn't use it. He doesn't invest it. And when the master returns, he calls his servants to himself, and he asks them uh, what each one of them has done with the money. Uh, of course, the two that were, had invested their money are rewarded for their faithfulness. But the one who buries it and wastes his opportunity is chastised. In fact, the text says that he was punished. 
And as you read the parable, it becomes apparent that the master in the parable symbolizes Jesus, and the, ser- and the servant symbolized Christians. And the talents or bags of gold symbolize the resources that Jesus entrusts to his people. And he entrusts you with all sorts of different resources, doesn't he? It's not just money. He's given you his word and an ongoing opportunity to grow as a disciple. The Lord has entrusted you with a measure of time and health and strength. Perhaps he's given you a spouse and a family. He's equipped each of his people with skill and with talent to use for his glory. He gives us jobs and vocations that we might earn a living. And some believers are given jobs and skills that enable them to earn a great deal of money. The Lord gives his people a variety of resources, all to invest for his glory. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. By laying up treasures in heaven, Jesus is saying that you should invest all you have as stewards of God's wealth. You and I may possess many things, but we don't own them. God is the owner of everything, and we are his stewards. We are his servants entrusted to manage his wealth, entrusted to invest it for his glory. But the ungodly rich in our text have hoarded their wealth, wealth they've gained by taking advantage of people who are poor and who are desperate. And as our text continues, you see that the rich have swindled and stolen from the poor in in order to enrich themselves, and it's come to the Lord's attention. And as the Lord addresses this sin through James, you learn that you should acquire your resources faithfully. That's our second heading. Acquire your resources faithfully. Earlier I mentioned that in the ancient world there were three standard sources of wealth. Harvested grain, clothing, and precious metals and jewels. The wealthy of the day were often landowners that grew things like wheat and barley or grapes and olives. And they employed various workers, including day laborers, who would be paid at the end of each day. Jesus used this common practice as an illustration in one of his parables. He tells the story of a man who owned a vineyard and who went out and hires day laborers to work in his field, each for a denarius per day. And you might remember that the vineyard owner hires men throughout the day and then he pays them all at the end of the day. Well, something similar is happening with the rich landowners in our text. They've hired day laborers to come and to work in their fields, but unlike the honest 
landowner in Jesus's parable, these guys are refusing to pay their laborers. In verse four, James writes, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This verse levels a charge against those who have extorted, defrauded, and cheated workers who brought in that year's harvest. And it also provides comfort for those who have been victims of these kinds of abuse because it demonstrates that God sees them and that he cares about their situation. James paints a graphic picture of the stolen wages crying out from heaven. He says, the wages which you have stolen cry out. They testify against the landowner demanding judgment. You see, you can't hide sin from God. He knows everything. When Cain killed Abel, God asked, What have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You see, sin shouts for God. It cries out for his attention, and its cries are always, always, always heard. The sin of these landowners is brazen. They're defiant. They're directly violating God's law. In Leviticus 19.13, the Lord says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. And in Deuteronomy 24.14 and 15, Moses says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. The landowners in our text have defrauded their workers altogether. And in verse 4, James says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The laborers who you've robbed cry out to God in prayer. And they ask him to act on their behalf. They want justice. They want to be paid for their work. They want their money. God cares for those who are downtrodden and oppressed. He promises justice. God loves righteousness, and he is deeply concerned for the poor and helpless. And James wants you to know that the Lord of hosts hears the cries of his people. He invokes the title Lord of Hosts, which means Lord of Armies. The hosts are the angelic armies of heaven. This is the name that young David invoked when he stood before Goliath on the battlefield. You remember he cried, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of Hosts, the God of the armies of Israel 
whom you have taunted, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And indeed, he did. You see, God fights for his people. He's their defense. And he's promised, he has promised that he will right every wrong. Every wrong. James wants to provide comfort to the poor in his congregations. He wants them to know for certain that God sees their tears and hears their cries. God knows the hardships they're facing, and James wants them to know that God will bring justice. He will bring justice to the landowners who are enriching themselves by withholding what rightfully belongs to others. And we need to be careful not to incur the same kind of guilt. We're guilty of acting like these landowners, when we refuse to pay our bills. When we hire others and then refuse to pay them for their services. And and we're guilty of stealing from others when we take credit for their work to advance our status or our position or our pay. Christians are called to trust the Lord and to work with honesty and integrity, waiting on the Lord to raise them up. Well, our text continues, and you see that James condemns the behavior of the rich who are spending their lives and their resources indulging themselves and living in luxury. Christians learn that they should have discipline and that they should exercise moderation. You learn that you should spend your resources faithfully. That's our third heading. Spend your resources faithfully. James persists in his indictment of these people who have lived only for wanton personal pleasure. In verse 5, he writes, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. They've lived in decadence, in self-indulgence. They've lived in wanton luxury, satisfying their every whim. They're like Eli's sons in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Bible says, of course, that the law is written on the heart of every man and woman, and that that law in your heart bears witness to your conscience. And Likewise, Eli's sons were aware of the God of the Bible. They were, after all, they were priests of the Lord. They knew God's law well. They knew what God required of them. They knew what sin was, but they didn't care. They didn't care. Instead, they chose to indulge themselves, to pursue their desires and their passions, The Bible refers to them as worthless fellows. Uh, Even though, as priests, they clearly knew about God, 1 Samuel 2.12 says, they did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. What does that mean? How could they be priests of the Lord, serving him every day, all day long, in and out? It's their job. How could it say they don't know the Lord? What does it mean? It means that they're not born again. 
They hadn't undergone that supernatural transformation that the Bible talks about. Being born again isn't just making a choice or walking forward at some kind of invitation. No, being born again is being supernaturally transformed by the Spirit of God where he renews your heart and your mind that you would truly understand, that you would actually care about what the Scripture says. That transformation that makes you hate sin and long to walk with God in holiness. You see, they didn't understand They didn't know the Lord. They didn't walk with him. And what were Eli's sons doing? They were stealing from others. They were stealing from others to indulge themselves. They were stealing from God as well. They were actually stealing meat that was given for sacrifices to God. They were like the men in James chapter 5. They were living for themselves and for their pleasure with no thought of the afterlife or consequences for their sin. In James chapter 5, verse 5, James says that these rich men are feeding themselves on riches and becoming fat like cattle for the slaughter In some ways, these men have experienced what they consider to be heaven on earth, and they've received their reward in this life. They might leave this life content, but they will enter the next life condemned. The rich man Jesus describes in Luke 16 would have felt right at home with the rich men that James is writing about. Do you remember the story about the rich man and Lazarus? Jesus begins this story by saying there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. What happens in this story? Well, Lazarus dies and then the rich man dies And Jesus goes on to tell of each man's experience in the afterlife. We find out that Lazarus was a believer and that he enters into paradise. But Jesus says the rich man entered a place where he was in anguish. And listen, that's not because he was wealthy. He didn't enter there for that. It's because like Eli's sons, he didn't know the Lord. And if you remember the story, you remember that the rich man was filled with regret and worry for his family and his loved ones because he didn't want them to go to that same place of torment. Well, what are we supposed to take away from the story that Jesus tells? We're to take away that we are to listen to the word of God. You'll remember, if you know that parable, that there's a theme of, of Moses. Uh, they have the scriptures. They testify. They should look and listen to the scriptures. The Bible teaches who God is and what he requires of you. It teaches that you are sinful and helpless to save yourself, that Christ has suffered death and rose on the third day for your sins. 
It says that you must embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and turn from your sins. The Bible says you must love God and your neighbors as yourself. As with the rich man, your use of your wealth in relation to the needs of your neighbors reveals your spiritual state. It reveals the spiritual state of your heart. The same is true with the rich in James chapter 5. If you claim to be a Christian, but your material wealth is amassed to live in luxury and self-indulgence, if you're not generous and compassionate with the use of your wealth, if you hoard your money and only give what amounts to crumbs to others, then you must ask yourself if you truly believe God's word. Do you know him? If so, how should you handle your wealth? Paul gives Christians instructions in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The Bible says that Christians are to spend their resources faithfully, that they're to be generous and share James addresses the rich oppressors in verse 6 who are doing just the opposite. He writes, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Because of their status, the rich feel as though they have the right to treat people however they wish. And James says they condemn and murder. This is probably figurative language. They murder the poor, righteous person that they've defrauded by withholding their wages and dragging them into courts. Meanwhile, the oppressed person doesn't resist because they have no power to do so. This is all part of the reason that they're crying out to the Lord for help. James wants his congregations to know that judgment is coming to those who indulge themselves and who oppress others. He wants them to be encouraged by remembering that God will right every wrong, every sin. Every sin will meet justice, either at the cross or in the lake of fire. The indictment that James delivers against the unbelieving rich is meant to steer the church away from the kind of sin that is addressed and to provide you with instruction along the way. This text teaches that you ought to manage your resources faithfully. You should invest the gifts and resources God has given you. Don't bury them. Use the gifts that God has given you to make an honest living. Humble yourselves and look to the Lord to raise you up and enjoy 
what God has given you. Give him praise for it. Use moderation. Share and be generous. After all, God spared no expense on you. He gave his only son to save you from sin. That's what this table points to. The broken body and blood of the Lord given for you. Let's pray. Lord, we would come before you in fear and trembling and in awe, Lord, knowing that you are serious about sin. And if we're honest, we often are not. Lord, we would ask that uh, you would help us. These types of texts that we learn from in your word are are challenging. And Lord, we don't really feel all that wealthy, so we wonder how these things apply to us. Lord, we'd ask that you would be faithful, help us to be faithful to you with the things you give us, whether it's our time, whether it's our money, whether it's our talents. Lord, we pray uh, that you would give us the power to respond to your word. We pray that they wouldn't just be words that fall on our ears that we remember for a day or two and that fall away. Lord, we would ask that by your word you would continue to shape our consciences and that our consciences would uh, cry out to us like sin cries out to you, uh, that we would heed your direction and that we would obey. Lord, help us to be faithful. We want to love you with all our hearts. We would ask that you would hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.